0: You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin.
1: Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so thankful today to have Tom Holliday on our show. Tom brings over 30 years of experience in alternative investments, He's the former co-founder and CIO at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, Titan Advisors. Prior to that, he actually did a stint in New York working for Soros, and he's really seen almost everything there is to see in the private investment space. He's just become a tremendous friend, a great guy to bounce things off of for me, and now leads Holiday Investment Partners, and they are launching a new fund in the alternative investment space that I personally think is very exciting. Today is not a solicitation for that fund. This is simply education about the private investment space. And in particular, we will get into commodities and how that plays into this area, as well as other things. Just right up front for our listeners, at the time of recording, I do not have a financial relationship with Tom. But that doesn't mean we never may. So uh, we want to be full transparency as we're required. But at the time of recording, we do not. So, Tom, we are so thankful to have you with us today. Thanks for being here on the show. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to uh, be a part of your podcast. Love it. Love it. Well, we always like to get started by just hearing people's stories. And one of the things that's fascinating for me, Tom, I was asking about how did you even get started in this hedge fund space or private investment space? And it all had to do with someone actually buying your parents' home. How did this (laughs) happen? Like, you know, how did you get started?
0: Yeah. So I'm a kid from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I was born and raised there. And Memphis has been a big commodity town over time. And as a matter of fact, the uh, first sale of grain to Russia happened out of Memphis, Tennessee. And and the man who engineered that, that sale actually bought our house when I was a kid. And I became curious about those markets. My father was a doctor. He knew nothing about financial markets. A matter of fact, he was maybe the worst investor of all time, but those markets kind of got me very, very interested and got me kind of pulling on that thread a little bit and led me to be, be a commodity trader to start my career.
1: You know, for some of our listeners, even the word commodity is a little bit foreign. Could you give us just a one-on-one introduction on when we say commodities, what is it you mean by that?
0: Well, commodities is a big term obviously so commodity ranges everything from agricultural commodities like uh, corn or soybeans to energy commodities like oil and natural gas to metals which we'll hopefully talk a little bit more about later on like copper or, or zinc or even precious metals like like gold and silver so these are you know the physical things that producers make and consumers use in order to create a product. And there are markets around those things that have been around for years that allow producers to transfer that price risk to speculators, but it's an important functioning market to help balance and transfer that risk throughout the cycle of a commodity. So let's use an example
1: and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pick on us up here in Indiana. In Indiana we're famous for race cars and corn and we used to be famous for basketball. So hopefully, you know, <laughs> hopefully someday we're going to get that back. It's coming back. We're all still rooting for that. But, you know, when we listen to the radio, when we have AM radio on, they always talk about the pork belly futures and what the cost <laughs> of pork bellies are. So let's use that as our example just to Again, some of our audience will have never even dealt with a commodity before. So when they hear on the radio a pork belly cost, what on earth does that even mean?
0: You would have to pick one of the famous and maybe most esoteric markets. Maybe the, your audience should go watch Trading Places as a primer <laughs> for what we're going to talk about today, because actually, does a pretty good, pretty good job of that. But you know, just commodities in general, whether it's pork bellies or I'm sure you hear a corn price as well. They're basically talking about the cash price of where they're trading that day. So if somebody's buying something in the cash market today, you know, where is it priced? And then there's a futures price, which is along the calendar so you know futures trade on different points throughout the course of the year and based on how tightly supplied things or how loosely supplied things are that price could be you know substantially above or below that cash price and then you have to consider things like storage and insurance costs that also affected that commodity as it goes out in time obviously all those things increase the cost of of that commodity so what commodity traders do is they look at the supply demand of the market, you know, based on information they get from a lot of different sources, the USDA or other sources. And then they look in this commodity curve, this calendar, and they look at where opportunities may exist based on where they think there is oversupply or undersupply. And if the Prices are factoring that in right now, and if they're not, is there an opportunity to take a position either long or short on a directional basis or on a relative value basis? You know, being long something on one part of the curve versus short something on the other part of the curve, or vice versa, and that would be a, a relative value or a kind of an arbitrage trade. So what your local markets guys are giving you information about what's happening today. The futures markets then look out in time to try to figure out how to price things based on supply demand. But the job of the futures market is to balance supply, demand and price. That's the job of the futures markets. Sometimes it does it really well. Sometimes it does it a little less well. But that's where it creates the opportunities for uh, commodities traders to profit from inefficiencies and dislocations from their view of supply, demand, and price.
1: I love it. I love it. And we'll talk even more about commodities today. Before we do that, I actually want to take a step backward because even though your new fund is very much focused in a great niche in the commodities space, you've spent time all over the alternative investment landscape, you know, just truly an industry veteran. And I want to go back. You mentioned actually doing a stint in New York for Soros. And you know this is uh, obviously a very polarizing individual but certainly even polarizing individuals I've learned just incredible amounts from them. And so what was it like actually working for Soros?
0: Mm. I think everything you said is spot on. So I went there at a really interesting time when I got there was when the tech wreck happened in March of 2000 and Stan Druckenmiller announced his retirement and Uh, There was a lot of, of change in that firm at the time. Fortunately, what that change gave me the ability to do is work with a small investment team and Mr. Soros to allocate a few billion dollars because a lot of the portfolio managers at the firm at that time had left. So I was very fortunate to be able to spend some direct time with him. And to your point, obviously, he's got some interesting views out there that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have strong views on one way or the other but the one thing that i learned about him and, and actually you can read Stan Drucker Miller talking about these things about Mr. Soros as well was his ability to when he saw an opportunity to really size it appropriately you know if you if you really have something you think is that nobody else is realizing and it's a huge opportunity you got to size it in order to take advantage of that however what I always remember was him understanding you know how to get out of it as well, though. So it's great to be big in something and concentrated, provided that you know the exit as well, because the worst thing in the world to do is to get stuck in a trade where you can't get out in spite of you know your best thesis and how you've you know researched things and you know you're right. well, as you know, markets have a way of humbling all of us. so even if you think you're right you've really got to pay attention to you know, when you're wrong, if you're wrong, how can you get out in a way that's not going to be too costly? And I think that's what he was great at, sizing things the right way to really capitalize on opportunity, but really understanding the exit if you're wrong.
1: And not a bad way to, to really get a strong start in the hedge fund space, getting
0: to manage a few billion dollars. <laughs> well, I, listen, I think that, you know, life is interesting and we never get to kind of set the path per se. Maybe some people are a lot smarter than I am and and really knew exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to do it at a young age. And as I look back on my career, one thing I can pretty clearly state is that I don't think I would have done it any differently, although I did know it at the time. And the reason why is futures trading and start your career in that I think is the best risk manager management tool you could ever have. What do I mean by that is, you know, futures, everybody's heard, I'm sure, about futures trading being dangerous, and, and it can be. I mean, these are instruments that you put up a little bit of margin for that controls a much larger notional value. Therefore, they have embedded leverage in those instruments. Therefore, you have to learn how to be a good risk manager from day one, just because the instruments themselves provide uh that that the need for that to happen number one
1: listeners what tom is talking about is just so important anytime we're using leverage in any investment the beauty and the risk is it works both ways if things go well they go even more well and if things don't go well they go less they go even worse when we're utilizing leverage so it's an incredible tool in the investment space But it magnifies returns one way or the other. And so when we're talking about learning to be a risk manager when you're deploying leverage, it's yes, because your returns are going to be magnified. We know that already. So it absolutely forces that risk management to be paramount.
0: That's a great lesson, by the way, to learn early in your career. And there are a couple other risk management things that I learned over my career that we'll talk about as well. So learning about leverage was really important in risk management. And then secondly, the combination of technical analysis and fundamental analysis and there's a huge debate between those two schools you know technical analysis says all information is in the price and therefore price action is you know informative and that's all you need to pay attention to obviously fundamental analysis suggests that no you need to look through and understand you know why either supply or demand is mismatched with a company you know what their balance sheet and income statement and their approach to markets and how it all makes sense but in commodity trading there's a lot of both of those things and i think that's really really important where you could look at both price action and fundamentals and come with a complete picture of what's happening in a marketplace understanding how prices and right now is reacting to fundamentals or how fundamentals are driving price and i think that was just a great training ground in terms of learning both of those things at the same time in addition to risk To kind of help teach me as I moved ahead and I think you can apply those things to mostly every strategy out there in addition to leverage which we talked about I think there are three main risk factors in investing and those three risk factors are leverage liquidity and concentration and I think you usually have one or a combination of those which is driving excess returns in any strategy or any market and I think the job that I tried to, or the atmosphere I tried to create at my firm, was really training the analysts to understand those three risk factors and trying to pinpoint in a strategy what was driving returns, and then it was our job to vote with our capital if we felt comfortable with those risks and with the manager's ability to manage those risks. So that was also a key thing I learned over my career in hedge funds.
1: Well, that's a great segue. So I love the Fundamental building blocks you were picking up, but what was the big break that actually got you started?
0: The big break. (laughs) I feel like this should be echoed in the background when you say that the big break. Did you just kind of get a job right out of school, or? I think the big break was actually going to Soros. I think that you know being in Memphis and staying in Memphis, obviously. It's a small town relative to the whole financial world. But I think moving to New York and getting that job at Soros uh, launched me into, you know, the financial center of the world, which then later enabled me to start my own firm and be very proud of the team and the track record and the process and everything we built at my firm prior to my departure. So
1: it may seem easier or uh, elementary for you, but what was the actual process by which you got to Soros? I mean, did you send a resume?
0: Did you meet someone? I mean, how did that actually transpire? I sat on his doorstep and pleaded. No, I'm just kidding. I was actually working in another firm prior to that and did a project for Soros. They were looking to allocate to uh, an outside manager. And I was working with another woman at that time and we did a project for them and they liked our project. And this woman and I both went into Soros um, after that, after that project. So I think it was, you know, this research report that we did on, for Soros, on a potential investment they were looking at, which gave us the opportunity to then go inside.
1: So they saw your work, were impressed. And said, hey, we want more of this. Why don't you guys just get over here?
0: We hope so. They never told me that, but we can only hope by bringing me in. That's what happened.
1: I love it. Well, there you go. So, you know, listeners, I know some of you have actually contacted me and said, you know, I'm thinking about making a switch, a career change, moving from my current fund, launching my own fund, maybe. I always love sharing these stories of how people got started. You see in this opportunity, one of your best potential connection points may be those other firms that you've already had a relationship with that have already seen your work. So absolutely, absolutely. So you spend the time at Soros and then you actually break off and help found Titan Advisors. Correct. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, like I told you, I'm originally from Tennessee. There's another gentleman I'd known since the the mid-1990s who was also from Tennessee, who had been in New York since the uh, mid-1980s, who had a, had uh, a small investment advisory firm, you know, really helping some some families and some small firms down south access the hedge fund world in New York. So he was kind of that liaison. And We had begun talking when I went up to Soros in 2000 about hedge funds in general and the markets, and in particular, the move of institutions into hedge funds. If you recall, in 2000, it was really all about the NASDAQ. I mean, the markets were going up every single day, technology stocks hedge funds were still really a high net worth maybe the savvier endowment foundation investment, but really broad application or broad investment into hedge funds from, you know, pensions and insurance companies. It was really non-existent at the time when the tech wreck happened, the world opened up because they finally realized that, you know, we have to have something that's a little bit more risk managed than just being, you know, completely bait along in the hedge fund world. Let me
1: unpack that real fast for our listeners, Tom. So, listeners, what Tom's talking about is you know, normally when somebody's investing, especially in the public market, when you buy a stock or a mutual fund, those are only allowed to buy a company's equity. And you do that when you're expecting that equity to go up. And so when we say a long position, that's what we're saying. We're saying we're buying a company. Let's pretend it's Tesla. And we're expecting that Tesla's stock is going to go up. That's a long position. And most of the time when you're buying into a publicly traded investment, that is how it's done. And especially for funds, a mutual fund, for example, typically has to only buy long, meaning they have to buy companies that are going to go up. And so they're not able to put protections in place. There's other ways you can place trades that say, well, I want to make money if that company goes down, or I want to make money if that company stays flat, uh, or I want to make money if that company is very volatile. There's lots and lots of different trades that you can place, but normally most investors, whether it was you know in their own retirement plan at work or these larger institutions, were only investing in this kind of long only strategies. We're only buying stuff. The only way we make money is if it goes up. And then we have this major tech collapse and serious investors finally realize, ooh, we don't want to be limited to only making money if the market goes up moving forward. That's when Tom says the world opened up to hedge funds. It was that realization of we don't want to be trapped only making money if the market goes up. Sorry for the interjection. We've got some of our listeners are ultra advanced and they're tracking with every word you say. Others are. uh, I'll give a shout out to my mother. She just started listening last week (laughs) and she would have had absolutely no clue what you're saying.
0: Mom, now you got a handle on what's happening there. Thanks for the clarification. No, I really appreciate that. Sometimes, you know, when you're in the business a long time, you you assume, you know, people probably know exactly what you're talking about. And I appreciate the clarification. So when that happened, you know, we believe there was going to be a big move into alternative investments, particularly from more of the institutional crowd. So we started a firm in order to to capture that opportunity. The challenges we faced, you know, being a new firm at that time, you know, we launched with, I think, slightly less than $50 million back in April of 2001 is, you know, if you're trying to get institutional assets from consultants, the consultants usually need a long track record with X amount of assets under management. And here we are, you know, the little engine that could. We thought we had great experience. We thought we had a really unique approach relative to the rest of the world. We favored smaller managers, more actively traded managers, which we thought was imperative in order to manage risk well. But, you know, we weren't goldman sachs or j p morgan so why would a consultant take a risk on little titan when they could give money to you know these other you know huge firms and not suffer the reputational risk if something happened at our firm, but that's okay because looking back once again, you know the fight, the struggle, the really you know wanting to prove you know your thesis and how you construct portfolios and how you look at managers and how you do things differently, you know all came together in its to due time, and we had exceptional performance in those years relative to the pack and did it in a much different way than everybody else did, which was really really rewarding and one of the things I was most excited about. Was, you know, really focusing on these emerging managers. These are managers that, once again, don't have, you know, years and years of track records or extraordinary assets under management. These are guys that have been in markets for a long time that are just embarking on their hedge fund career, and they're just hoping anybody listens to them. To be quite honest with you, so we really like the hunger element of a small manager. Because once again, you're starting a new business. You can't lose a lot of money. You got to execute really well. Because once again, why would somebody else put money with the new guy if they could put money with someone who's really, really experienced? So they've got to really outshine the pack relative to that. They've got to you know, have a business that has, you know, it's all buttoned up that you're not concerned about any kind of business risk at the end of the day as well. So we developed a really strong presence in this emerging manager field. And when I was there, we invested in about 150, 160 emerging managers with some of the Notable guys you see on CNBC today, we were day one with, which was really exciting and fun to watch over time. But we really, really enjoyed that. And then our macro portfolio was really different than everybody else's. And, you know, macro managers are typically these big global asset allocators that look at currencies and fixed income and equity indices around the world and make these big decisions like a Soros around those things. We had a little bit more of a commodity bend. What we do, and I think that has to do with my background and my partner's background, who also trade in the commodity markets. We just really liked the non-correlation they gave us, and then in some of those markets, some really exceptional traders and risk managers that really separated our returns from a lot of the pack by having this, this commodity focus back then, which was also a lot of fun. I love that. I want to push a little
1: deeper into commodities, and I like one of the things you just said, Tom, that. They just function differently than the typical market. Obviously, a lot of that has to do is no matter what's happening in the economy, we still need to eat. We still need access to everyday things like electricity and the wire that gets it to the places we need it to be, all of those things. And so it does. It's just a different type of investment. And one of the things that I've loved learning from you, you really taught me that there's four different ways to invest in commodities. And I know you have your favorite, and we'll definitely cover that as well. Just for a listener's benefit, what are those four ways that people can invest in commodities should they choose to?
0: Well, there's direct and there's indirect exposure into the commodity markets. So the one most of your listeners are going to probably be very familiar with is, say, an equity uh, you're gonna invest in a company that either is in the mining industry or touches some form of the agricultural industry. But these are really indirect exposures because these companies typically aren't just just focused on that. They're focused on a lot of different things. And then you also have to deal with you know their balance sheet, their their board. You have to deal with all the other things like ESG or whether it's a value stock or growth. You know, it gets labeled all these things, and it can really affect the performance of that stock relative to the opportunity. I mean, you can just look at it today in terms of oil. Oil's approaching approaching $100, but energy equities aren't even close to where they were back when those things were there. And once again, it has to do with, you know, these companies if, if typically not been great capital allocators and have suffered accordingly. In addition to now ESG is a really strong focus for a lot of people and therefore You know they get hurt because of some of those exposure to their company. So you have stocks.
1: We've talked about ESG in the past on the show, Tom, but just a real high level, if this is someone's first episode and they're not familiar with ESG, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. And these are stocks that get scored based on how they rate their environmental impact or not, their social impact or not, or their governance impact or not. And unfortunately, mining companies have a very poor environmental score and many times a poor social score. They're usually in emerging markets, these mining companies, that's where a lot of these mines are and therefore their employment practices and other things are are questioned. And so anyway, they, they typically suffer from a couple of those things that investors are focused on in that ESG space, if that makes sense.
1: It does. So listeners, there's a kind of macro trend in the investment field to say it's not just about having good returns on investments. It's also about doing that in a way that is globally responsible for humanity and that's where it could take different shape in terms of are these investments friendly to the environment are they using fair employment practices avoiding child labor for example all these things it's in the high level it's been a i think a very good thing for the world to say you know let's not just be focused on can we make the maximum amount of money let's really consider the impact to everyone around us in the way that we do that. But so there are more and more investors now that say, not only do we want to invest, but we want to do it in a way where we feel comfortable that we're not creating a bigger
0: problem by investing in this way. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. So you could invest in the equity. You could invest in the physical commodity. And what I mean by that, you go out and buy a bunch of copper, <laughs> You could you know, buy a bunch of gold bars and store them and insure them and hold them for some period of time, looking for an appreciation of price in those metals before you then sell them to an uh, end user or into the market somewhere down the road. It's uh, typically you need a pretty big balance sheet. Big storage facility that's secure. You've got to really understand the physical business quite well to to really execute that well, or or have someone who does do that. But once again, that sounds
1: like a nightmare to me.
0: It's pretty capital intensive. You could invest in the in debt markets. So a lot of these like mines are huge or big CapEx projects. You know, they need a lot of debt in order to, you know, both service an existing mine or create a new mine. So you could invest in, in debt markets if you wanted to, private debt markets. So we're
1: lending them money? Money. Tom, correct me if I'm wrong on this. This is just uh, overly elementary. It's I've just never been able to wrap my head around if I could participate in the growth of something, the maximum growth of something. I've never had my head around, why would I cut my growth off at the knees and only participate in the debt returns unless I was just trying to really, really minimize my risk? That I understand. But beyond that, is there any other reason that I would consider going to the credit market outside of just some kind of risk management type play?
0: a higher yield versus, you know, something else, you know, maybe you're going to get more of a high yield in mining and those versus, you know, some other type of corporate or government bond and that maybe gets you attracted. But to your point, it's a risk decision at some point, you know, some people are just credit investors. They just feel much more comfortable with the protection of credit instruments provided it's properly underwritten provides relative to the risk and the potential upside that equity or or something else provides. So, Sometimes it's just the comfort level and the mindset of the investor and their comfort level around that. And then lastly is, is the futures market. So the futures markets were, were designed in order to, once again, kind of marry the cash and the futures of these commodities. They're liquid. They're exchange traded. They trade off the supply, demand and price that these commodities are supposed to function around. So, Tom, for example, if there were some metals that we knew
1: were going to be in abnormally high demand... Compared to what they'd historically been, if we knew that was the case or felt extremely confident about that, then working inside of the futures market would allow us to really utilize that supply and demand understanding to our advantage in the investments we make.
0: It's going to provide opportunity to try to capture that thesis or that investment through the futures markets. However, once again, the futures market's professional. You need to understand the risk. You need to understand you know, the embedded leverage in these instruments and how to manage that risk. Commodities are inherently cyclical. So once again, supply, demand, and price. It's going to try to balance cyclically over that. You know, copper is called Dr. Copper because it's got heavy ties to economic growth. And even though supply-demand may be loose or tight. Sometimes it's just the economic growth that's happening today or the one day when stocks are down because they're worried about growth. Guess what? Copper doesn't really care about its supply-demand that day. It's going to be down just because it's kind of been attached to, once again, economic growth. So it's really, really important, I think, that you know, professional management is a way to kind of access these markets just because they are specialized. You do need to have people who really understand supply, demand, and price. They need to understand the risk in these instruments. And if you could find that, I think there's great opportunities in those markets.
1: Well, this is a perfect segue into the thesis (laughs) of what you're up to at Holiday Investment Partners and the fund you're on the eve of launching. And again, listeners, this is not a recommendation to pursue this fund. This is just educational about why the investment thesis is what it is and
0: how that works so why don't we segue right yeah, into that that's fantastic so i think there's an opportunity to participate in the clean energy transition through commodities that are a primary part of the solution okay that's the opportunity and these commodities by the way are essential they're not just maybe it's going to happen they're essential to this clean energy transition. Now that's the opportunity, but what has me worried, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second as well is the potential perfect storm that could lead to much higher prices in these commodities over the next eight years or so and be a primary driver of inflation. So I'll talk about the opportunity. We'll touch on what has me worried, and then we'll go over there. So, you know, just to kind of fill in some of what we just led with is we all know, Paris Accord and COB26 has set this net zero goal by 2050 to reduce temperatures by one and a half degrees by restricting carbon emissions. And the IEA states, to achieve net zero goals will require a complete transformation of the energy system. Now, I'm going to say that one more time, a complete transformation of the energy system. That's basically taking us from fossil fuels to renewable energy or Maybe I could say it better, the electrification of everything. That's really what renewables are, the electrification of everything. The estimates are we're going to need about 120 to $150 trillion or about $5 trillion a year between now and 2050 to meet that goal. That's a massive amount of money and a huge secular tailwind that's, by the way, been signed on by over 190 countries around the world everybody's on board and everybody's talking about it's going to need this much money so you've got a tailwind behind you that's probably 2x the jet stream right now
1: those were trillions with a t not billions with a b
0: (laughs) they're the t they're the t kind so once again what do you need for clean energy or this electrification there for everything it all starts with metal it starts with copper it starts with aluminum it starts with nickel it starts with zinc these are you. You cannot electrify everything without those metals. It's impossible. They're not replaceable. They are used in solar. They're used in wind. They're used in EVs. Using batteries. They're using electricity grid. They're used in every single thing that this transformation of electrical grid or the electrical system needs. So I mean, we could just talk about it like copper, for instance. So renewables, on average, can use up to 12x more copper than traditional energy. Wind and solar use between seven times to 37 times more copper than conventional electricity. EVs can use up to four times more copper in a car and much more than that when you get to buses and larger things. We sold about 2.2 million electric vehicles in 2019 and it's projected we're gonna sell 28 million by 2030. The projected demand for copper from EVs alone is supposed to be up 10x by 2030. By the way, that's just electric vehicles. If you talk about the charging stations, by the way, that are needed, you're talking between 15 to 20-something pounds of copper per station that's needed. And they're talking about needing 20 million stations by 2030. Yeah, I heard uh, Robert Friedland recently state that uh, he's the CEO of Ivanhoe Mines. And uh, he recently stated that only 700 million metric tons of copper have ever been mined since the beginning of time. And he says we're going to need another 700 million metric tons over the next 20 years at a 3% global GDP growth rate. So, just to frame the demand side of things, it's pretty massive. Okay. So, now you next, next it leads you to the supply side, which is Okay, so how are we gonna meet all this demand? And that's where it's really, really questionable. CapEx in existing mines has increased almost every year since 2012 to 14. In 2022, CapEx is supposed to be down about 40% versus the 10-year average. So this is going the exact opposite way, right? Yeah. So you've got this huge demand and, and actually CapEx is going down. Now, why is that important? because there are really long lead times between when you discover a mine and when it comes to market. I mean, on average, it's about eight years. So it doesn't matter if the price of copper triples tomorrow, it's gonna take a long time to get it to market to be usable. So it's just not something we could do. Additionally, ore grades, you know the amount of copper you get out of a find have been declining over the last 10 years. So they're about 25% less over the last 10 years or so. Now, what does that mean? It means that for the same amount of work, you're getting 25% less copper out of there. So if you're gonna work harder, which is gonna be more energy intensive, right? More energy intensive, because these are very energy intensive industries. You're using more energy and more water in order to get the same amount of copper out because because it's been declining over time. So you have some problem there. Once again, Robert Friveland-Avajo Mines stated that we need at least $250 billion of investments over the next five years alone in mining. That's just the next five years. There's projected to be about a six billion ton deficit by 2030 in just total copper supply. Let me put that in reference. It represents about six million tons represent about 30% of production today. So it's a big number. So as we go out to 2030, we're increasing you know demand quite a lot and supply is just not keeping up. So And then lastly, you know, a lot of these metals are are located and mined in challenging geopolitical areas around the world, and and China processes actually the majority of these base metals. And so, you know, we've we've got to stay friendly with a lot of people around the world to just ensure that we get there. So that's kind of supply-demand. What's this perfect storm I was talking about? So when you combine huge demand with questionable supply and then add on to that carbon pricing, and poor transition planning, now you have a potential negative feedback loop. So huge supply demand is going to drive it on that alone. But carbon pricing. So, you know, carbon is fast becoming its own asset class. You know, what carbon pricing seeks to do is put a price on pollution and financial repercussions of that. So these largest greenhouse gas emitters, like energy and like mining, they are to the kind of the center of these carbon markets. So, you know, Carbon prices move higher that actually flows through to energy prices and to metals prices and they want carbon prices to go higher to make renewables more viable because you know they, they they need to obviously carry their own weight in terms of price. So once again you've got it's higher prices the higher the prices of carbon go, the more it flows through to energy and to metals as well and, to the price or to the finished good of those things as well—that's used in everything—and then this poor transition planning. So, so, what's that? I think everyone has had been really notably focused on the goal: twenty fifty, you know, taking emissions down around the world. But what they haven't focused on is a smooth transition path to kind of get there. And I think what we're seeing. In Europe this year, if anybody's been been watching kind of energy prices in Europe with the huge spike in natural gas prices and huge spike electricity prices, you know, they've been reducing their nuclear capacity over there pretty aggressively over the years and really trying to focus on renewables. And then the problem is when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining and you don't have nuclear to kind of help. Now you're relying upon natural gas, and you're getting your natural gas from Russia, and have this pipeline controversy and embedded in that, and it's created now. You know, Europe is dependent upon Russia for gas because they've jettisoned nuclear, and now we've so we've got this problem there. In addition, you know, natural gas and oil naturally depletes so a well. You know, loses you know a lot of its productive capacity just naturally over time. So if you're not finding more of it and demand stays the same, well, now you got a supply-demand mismatch, which is why oil is where it is today. But these, you know, e has been capital starved. They don't want oil companies drilling for new oil. And they've ostracized these companies f- for doing that for likely a lot of good reasons. But the path to get the net zero has got to go through some amount of fossil fuels. And if you're not paying attention to that, in some instance to make it more balanced, we're likely to suffer from spikes. Now, why is that a feedback loop? Because I think if oil, let's say oil goes $150 in two years, that's probably gonna accelerate the push to EVs, which once again, is gonna accelerate the buying of these metals, which is gonna accelerate carbon pricing. So this is this perfect storm and negative feedback loop that I'm talking about, which is huge demand supply, poor transition planning, and carbon pricing, all kind of you know, moving this whole thing up potentially over time. So, you know, my view is that greenflation, you know, might be the primary driver of inflation. So, if you want to be a part of this green energy transition, metals is where you got to go through. And if you're worried about inflation, this actually can kind of potentially help with that as well. So, I I think it's a um, it's an interesting investment thesis that that actually helps with a couple of things in my view. Absolutely. I actually personally love your thesis, Tom. I think so much of what
1: people are trying to get their arms around in society right now, how do we actually move to being a society that's not hurting our environment uh, that we're actually helping it? I have a buddy I like to joke with. Uh, We always say that Tesla is, is our favorite electric vehicle that's currently powered by coal. And for this all to actually work, we've got to move so the energy grid is not still being driven by coal so that when we're trying to get electricity for our electric vehicles, it's not ultimately being powered by the mine, by the coal mine.
0: Yeah, it's probably going to be natural gas is that first transition thing. It's the cleanest of all of the fossil fuels. It's, you know, actually something that's going to be necessary Because renewables can't carry the baseload right now and battery technology is not there to kind of be the fix in between to store enough energy to kind of be there when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. So those are the goals, but we're just not there yet. And even Larry Fink at BlackRock said, you know, the green energy transition is great, but we're probably going to expect much higher inflation cause. We just don't have the technology to do it right now, yeah, which is interesting. It's
1: that transition that you talked about. And that's part of why I love your thesis. You know, there's just all those things have to come together to help make this actually feasible. So, Tom, this has been absolutely tremendous. We're going to move into my favorite part of our show where I actually get to ask you <laughs> two questions. Uh the first is the question everyone wants know to know. Answer. And what what it really is is the question I want to know. So, you know, you've you've spent over 3 decades all over the private investment universe. You've seen lots and lots of managers and deals and all those things. What's been your favorite investment you've gotten to be a part of over your career?
0: Wow. How about that? My favorite investment I've got to be a part of over my career. You know, I think, and it's kind of in line with what we're talking about today. You know, what I found out is, you know, I'm going to use a lot of little squirrely phrases here, but, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get, right? Or chance favors the prepared mind, whatever, however you want to say it. But I was in Texas one time, you know, talking to a commodity trading shop, coincidentally. And one of the portfolio managers there who had been a strong driver of returns. Matter of fact, the driver of returns had just left. And because I was in the office that day and because I really focused on you know, what drove risk and what drove attribution, and then talking about this one manager who had just left to start his own firm. And that manager was located across the hall from the guy I was interviewing. As soon as I left that meeting, I went across the hall to talk to that manager and we invested with them and it ended up being one of the best investments we ever made. It was in the natural gas space. But it's all about being open and being curious and following leads and pulling on threads. You know, a lot of times it doesn't happen just sitting in your office. It, you, know, you have to kind of be out there and being in the flow of information. But more importantly, it's, it's about then connecting dots. I think Steve Jobs said, you know, all creativity is, is connecting things. And I think to be creative, and I think you have to have a lot of creativity in investing, you just need to connect things, whatever they may be. And hopefully that will lead to great outcomes. But that was one of the more exciting things that I did in my career was you know, looking at another fund, learning about this other manager who had been the driver of returns to the fund, and then following that and making an investment in our portfolio, which is really exciting.
1: I love it. You walked across the hall. Got out of the meeting, walked, across, walked the hall, across the hall. Ended up being one of the best investments. And, you know, I'm sure there was a moment where you're questioning, ah, should I walk in there? Should I not? And you know, it's the fact that you did. Sometimes that is just the most important thing is not just thinking about the action, but actually taking it and try to tell my kids that all the time. You know, just do it. Like Nike had it right. Just go do it. Worst case scenario, they're like, oh, we don't want to invest with you or we don't, don't, we don't no. want your money, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be. But I'd rather get that. no. I, I love telling people I've never been afraid to invite anyone out there to lunch. So far, the only person who has told me no was George W. Bush. And I love that. This was <laughs> right after he had been a sitting president. I reached out, you know, through my alumni business school channel and I got to no. know and I love it. I love being able to say that George W. Bush told me no thanks for lunch. Like, at least yeah. I asked. So <laughs> go do it. Go do it. Well, last question that we have for you to wrap up today, Tom, you are putting out a new fund at Holiday Investment Partners. Now, listeners, this is really important. We've talked in the past, there are different types of funds out there. Some funds are available for the general public. Some you have to meet certain qualifications. Tom's fund is actually a fund that is only available for qualified purchasers. So this means you've got to have investments of at least $5 million, or you've got to be a a sophisticated family office or pension plan things of that nature. So unfortunately, this isn't for everybody. We'll continue to advocate to open up our laws so that we can get access to some of these great investments for everyone. But Tom, for those listeners who are qualified purchasers or they represent companies that are able to make qualified purchaser investments, what's the best way for them to reach out and get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, sure. I think the best way to reach out and get in touch with me is the email. And you could reach me at info at Holiday, H O L L I D A Y, I P dot com. So I is an in investment, P is in Partners dot com. Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for
1: being on the show with us today. This has been absolutely tremendous. I understand commodities so much better now. I hope our listeners do as well. <laughs> and uh, really excited for things to come and, and and to watch your thesis unfold over the next decade. I think it's gonna be tremendous.
0: Well, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for having me on. I could talk about this stuff all day long. uh, And you brought up a lot of good old memories that I tried to forget, but it was fun going over them again. I love it. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.